0: Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Acts chapter number 7, we'll start reading with verse number 55. The Bible says these words, but he, this is speaking of Stephen, first martyr, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. For a little while tonight, I want to teach along the subject. It's been now several months ago that I had a conversation with uh, someone of, of a mature age. And they had asked me a question concerning these couple of scriptures. And I answered it in a very just quick fashion and manner. They spoke of how there was probably other people that maybe needed just a little bit of enlightenment on that. And so I'm going to take my time. We could answer this real quick, and I could say, well, this is just that. But we're just going to take our time walking through it, okay? Anybody in a hurry? You got 45 minutes to spare? Tonight, I just want to talk about the right hand of God. The right hand of God. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Jesus, I come to you. God, I pray, Lord, you would help our minds. You would help our spirits. Help us, Lord Jesus, to digest Your Word tonight. I pray, O oh God, open up our mind, Open up our understanding. Let there be a clarity, Lord Jesus, of truth. God, I pray, O oh Lord, uh, mostly, God, we need Your anointing. Your Word is already anointed. It's quick, it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's an alive Word. God, it does break, Lord Jesus, as a hammer, I pray, O oh Lord Jesus, minister in this house Let you people be attentive connect, Lord, with your word in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray amen and amen everybody say amen you may be seated tonight so the setting of scripture that we're looking at here this evening if I can back up and just give a little a, a little runway for us here In Acts chapter number 6, the Bible speaks how several of the disciples were so busy in what they called serving tables or the administration, the daily administration of uh, the Grecians and the others, so busy involved in that work that evidently they were being remiss as far as in prayer and the study of the word. And as a result of that, Wisdom spoke among them and said that we need to find us out some men that are full of the Holy Ghost that we can set over this matter so that we can give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so they sought out seven men. The Bible says that we're full of the Holy Ghost and of a proper character in order to uh, wait on tables. And uh, then they were able to see to their work. And one of the seven that were uh, chosen in Acts chapter number 6 is this man by the name of Stephen the Bible says was full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Stephen finds a time frame in his life that uh, he's kind of taken before a group of people, and uh, he begins to explain to them some of the great histories of of God. He speaks of the death, burial, and the resurrection. He goes through a little bit of the history of the church in general, even that which preceded the church, of what we would call the Acts 2, birthing of the church. He even goes back further than that. And as a result of his stance and, and being in relationship with this Jesus Christ that was walking and living among them, uh, there were some people that didn't care much for what Stephen stood for, what he had to say. And as a result of that, they're going to stone him. Now, I tell you what, if you didn't like somebody in Old and New Testament times, that's just about the, the gist of it. Man, we just get rid of you. I tell you what, we'd be bad, we would be bad shape in modern-day church if that still existed some of us would already be pushing up tulips. Amen. And so they was going to stone Stephen. And so the picture that we have in Acts 7, this is Stephen at that place for uh, stoning. And uh, he, he, he has already started going through that process of being stoned. And so the Bible says, speaking of him being full of the Holy Ghost, he looks up, he looks into heaven, he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And that's further illustrated and reiterated in verse number 56, that he's seen the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. These verses of Scripture have troubled uh, many people throughout the years, apostolic people uh, alike. And the questions that wander through people's minds whenever they read this type of Scripture is they ask themselves, "Did Did Stephen see God sitting on his throne in heaven? This is appropriate, I guess. Did Stephen see God sitting on his throne in heaven? I'm not going to teach from here. I'm not moving into the modern world of church society and preaching from a stool, okay? Don't go out of here and say, well, Pastor McGee, he's preaching from a stool time. No, 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 no. Did he see God sitting upon his throne? And Come here. I'm just saying what people goes through people's minds. And then, did, did he see Jesus Standing on the right hand of God is what Stephen saw, a God sitting on the throne and a Jesus that was standing on the right side of God. Did Stephen see two persons in heaven? Did he see, as what someone surmised, did he see God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ? I remember, and I may have shared with this, and I hope to answer those before we're all said and done tonight. But I remember, and perhaps I've shared this before, but I remember reading a story, and the story was about a new convert, and uh, this new convert uh, was bombarded with such questions like, I just relate to you from somebody, just newly uh, in the faith, just had founded a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at that point, he is just so thrilled by his experience So thrilled about what he has found and has not yet, this being very new to him, has not yet learned all of the scriptures or had been taught all of the scriptures uh, about the doctrine. And whenever he was pressed for some doctrinal aimed questions were were put at him, like the ones I asked you tonight, he responded with some very practical reasoning. And he said, well, he said, if you had been hit with several stones like Stephen was, it's hard telling what you might see. Now, now that seems very humorous, and it is to a certain degree humorous, but it's important for us to understand the scriptures. Amen. Now, I don't want somebody that's up to this point that's misunderstood that for the past twenty years you've been in church now just use this so new converts thing, and I'll tell you what, he's been hitting the head. Because I would dare to say that some of us might just succumb to that. We need to understand the scriptures. For one reason, and I get just a few reasons why we need to understand the Scriptures. For one reason, here is Stephen, a man that is described according to Scripture full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. This man's full of faith. He's full of the Holy Ghost. And we need to understand the Scriptures because if a person starts to interpret Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost, as seeing two persons in heaven... God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, then that's going to carry some weight because this is a man that's full of the Holy Ghost. So it's imperative that we understand scriptures because we even have modern day occurrences in our society that have carried so-called weight. And by that, I mean there have been people, you know, if it's written down, it's the truth. That's the way people's minds think. If it's recorded in any form—newspaper, a book, an article, a blog on the internet—if it can be Googled, then it's true. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to disappoint somebody tonight, but not everything that's recorded, written is true. And so people have picked up books at their Barnes and Noble and their books a million that read stories about others who have supposedly died went to heaven, they've come back to life, they've wrote a book, and they've attested to the fact that they saw Jesus sitting or standing on the right hand of God. And they've led a lot of people to believe that whenever they died and went to heaven, they sing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I'm serious. And people, because it's been recorded in a book, they believe every bit of it don't take anything or correspond it with scripture or the word of God and they believe in it and what they're doing is believing a lie amen because they get in this mentality well if that person truly died and had, or had a near death experience and they experienced this then it must be true I've never died and came back to life so it must be true However, mark this well. I don't care what the story is that's told. Listen to me well. Mark this well. That if whatever whoever says, I don't care who they are, if it does not match or line up to the Bible, the Word of God, then it is absolutely without controversy false. I don't care who says it. What their ranking in society is, I don't care if they died and came back to life. If it does not correspond with the Scripture, it's a bunch of falsehood. Furthermore, if having died and coming back to life was the only validation needed for truth, then why don't more people believe the Bible? The Bible says in Luke 16, and folks, let me tell you tonight. I could have told you at the very beginning instead of turning to a certain chapter and verse and book just open your Bible because we'll probably read there before it's all said and done tonight all right Luke 16 and verse number 30 the Bible says and he said nay father Abraham this this is the rich man that is speaking to, to, to Abraham he said nay father Abraham but if one went unto them he's speaking about his brothers from the dead they will repent and he said unto them, Unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they per- be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The story of the rich man and Lazarus, they both at this time frame have died. Lazarus is described as being in Abraham's bosom. The rich man, the Bible says, lifted up his eyes in hell. They're in two different locations and localities the rich man is pleading with Abraham that Lazarus would be sent back from the dead to his father's house where his five brothers were and he wanted Abraham to send Lazarus so that Lazarus would testify to his brothers, to his family about the reality of a hell and the reality of a heaven. He says, send my brother back from the dead and let him tell them about the reality of an afterlife. Because that's going to change how they are presently living life in the world. So let that one from the dead go back and tell all this stuff. But Abraham's response to Lazarus was basically this. He tells the rich men that his brothers have Moses. What's he speaking about? He's speaking in generality about the first five books of the Old Testament. The law. They have Moses and the prophets, the writings of the prophets, they can consult Moses and the prophets. And the rich man says, But you gotta understand, Abraham. If, if 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 one rose from the dead and told them what they needed to do, they would believe it, it would be great, they would follow through. But Abraham, on the other hand, in his response, begs to differ with Lazarus. Because every time truth is shared from this word that you and I hold in our hands, you are essentially hearing from one who has already risen from the dead. Because all of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Ghost. It's all inspired by God. It's all inspired by that man, Christ Jesus, who had a death, burial, and resurrection. So if you can't believe the Scripture, you won't believe if someone rose from the dead, for that matter. You must believe Scripture. This is written from one who rose from the dead. The Bible tells us in John 1, one. And please don't let some of these common verses of Scripture, you just tune me out because we're hitting a common chord of Scripture. John one and one. in the beginning was the, everybody? Word. word. And the Word was with God. And the God. Word was God. Verse 14. And that's not little w, that's big w. We're talking about the Bible. The word, we got a bulletin flying around. Amen. Verse 14, and everybody in the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 14 is speaking of the man Jesus Christ. That word that was with God, that word that was God was made flesh. It dwelt, literally tabernacled. It tabernacled among you and I. That word was God. It dwelt among us and it died. Amen. And it was buried and it rose again. We can believe it. Amen. We can believe it. This is nothing but a, dead, a once dead man writing to us today. So if just, if just truth was validated just by someone dying and coming back, then everybody should believe the word of God. But it takes more than just that as validation. Amen. For us tonight. Whenever we look at Stephen in Acts chapter number 7 we look at that and many people begin to consider the right hand of God as a literal physical right hand of God but a literal physical right hand of God is impossible All right John 4:24 in the dissertation that the Lord had with the woman at the well, the Lord says, God is a spirit. Everybody say spirit. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. What is a spirit? According to our dictionaries today, Webster's Dictionary, it includes this definition as what is what a spirit is a supernatural incorporeal rational being usually invisible everybody say invisible. Invisible. invisible invisible to human beings but having the power to become visible at will or manifest itself in some way It's invisible, but it has to use some form, some other thing uh, uh, outside of itself in order to manifest itself, to become visible to you and I. Jesus, even speaking in Luke 24, 39, spoke that a spirit hath not flesh and bones. God is a spirit. A spirit hath not flesh and bones. Therefore, A plus B B equals C. You understand what I'm saying. You you deduce then that if a spirit hath not flesh and bones, then God, who is a spirit, hath not flesh and bones. Jesus also speaking in Matthew 16, 17, and I didn't include every scripture tonight for the screen because I was just showing mercy on my poor wife. But in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus also speaking said that basically that God or his father did not have flesh and blood. Because whenever he spoke to Peter and Peter, whenever he's asking questions about who do men say that I am, Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ's reply to Peter was, he said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father. There's the contrast. Flesh and blood didn't, but my father. Meaning what? That father was not flesh and blood. God was not flesh and blood so God is a spirit he does not have flesh he does not have bones he does not have blood Colossians so we get this idea he's a spirit alright Colossians 1.15 Colossians 1.15 and it starts with who you go back just a couple of verses to verse 13 you realize that it's speaking of God's dear son who was what who Jesus Christ It's the who is speaking of Jesus. So if I may, just before the who, insert Jesus, who is the image of the invisible. Everybody say invisible. Invisible Invisible God. The firstborn of every creature. As kids, we used to have invisible ink. Guess what? You couldn't see it. (laughs) Now I'm not trying to I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence here but God is a spirit no flesh, no bones, no blood the invisible God Jesus is the image the person the manifestation of that invisible God the firstborn of all creature. furthermore 1 Timothy 1.17 I'm just underscoring the fact God being a spirit and that being invisible something that you don't see alright First Timothy 1.17, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. God is a spirit. You don't see a spirit. Spirit don't have flesh, spirit don't have bones, spirit does not have blood. It's an invisible God stated in just a couple of verses of scripture that I've already read. A invisible God. So if Stephen seen God, he would have seen something no one had ever seen. People saw manifestations of God through means of, of an angelic presence. All right? Amen. But God by nature is spirit. Spirit. Which is invisible? Is everybody okay? Yes, sir. Mhm. I'm trying to walk slow, because I I want to teach this today, and you still have it tomorrow. Okay. Seriously. John one and eighteen. And if you don't get it, listen to the podcast again. Write down scriptures, scripture, 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 scriptures. John one eighteen says, no man Has seen God at the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. No one's seen God any time. But the only begotten in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. There is one instance, literally, that he declared him. All right. His image alone, walking among the disciples in person, in flesh and blood and bone, was a declaration of God. All right. But he declared him one time to one of his followers by the name of Philip in John 14. Philip was so desirous of seeing the Father, of seeing God, wanted to. You could almost imagine a little, uh, you know, from histories have gone by, no man has seen God at any time. What happens when, when someone tells you you can't? That makes you want to, don't it? You can't have the cookie, Mariah and Trevor. What are they doing, man? They're snooping around the cookie jar. Adam and Eve, you can't eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. What happens? Everybody wants to do what they... Mm-hmm. And so could you imagine through the histories of time, no man, no man can see God. Man, that just makes a desire that much more emphatic inside of Philip. Man, I want to... See... So he's desiring so much to see God that he even speaks to Jesus. He says, man, he said, shew us the Father. Shew us God, and it would suffice it. And Jesus replied to him. Here he is declaring, all right, the invisible God to him. He said, he that has seen me, Jesus speaking, has seen the Father. Because all of God you will ever see will be in the person, 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 Christ Jesus. Because God is not a person. He's a spirit. I'll hit this again, but it's one of my favorites of 2 Corinthians 5.19 when he said to it though that God, that spirit was in Christ, Jesus Christ, the person. And as a result, he's declaring if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I have manifested the Father to you by being present here upon this earth because God is in me. Amen. Amen. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. Further verses of Scripture. Anybody wants the oneness of God? You need to be writing down these Scriptures of Colossians 2.9. These are great Scriptures. The Bible says, for in Him, speaking of who? Jesus Christ. For in Him, Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth in Jesus Christ bodily because God's a spirit he's invisible no flesh no bones no blood it's found in Jesus Christ as we've already said Colossians 1 15 Jesus is the image of the invisible God so a physical interpretation or literal interpretation of the right hand of God is incorrect God does not have a physical right hand unless he chooses to manifest himself in a human form or some other form. If we're, listen, if we're going to view the right hand of God as a physical hand, then we must change our view of several verses of Scripture that describes God. See, the language of Scripture a lot of times is symbolic, metaphoric, poetic. Amen? Amen? And so whenever we read, if we're going to read that as a literal hand, right hand of God, then consider some of these other scriptures, Isaiah 66 and 1. Let's look at them literally, okay? Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. God has big feet. Must have large feet that he rest his feet on the earth. Proverbs fifteen three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Now I understand eyes can be plural by one two, but if they're in every place, he must have some some much eyes, more eyes, a lot of eyes. His eyes are in every place, literally. Exodus fifteen eight with the blast of the nostrils speaking of God the waters were gathered together God has a big nose I mean I've never sat in even a creek bed and tried to row any back but God must have a big nose he can just blow air out of his nostrils and waters part. literally literal interpretation Psalms ninety-one, verse four. He, speaking of God, you can read it in the context of Scripture. Psalms ninety-one. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. God has wings. He has feathery, (laughs) feathery wings. I've seen some of you smile, some of you laugh, and some of you still just looking at me. But regardless, evidently not literal descriptions of God. But they are relating God to you and I, to the audience, to the reader, to the people that's going to peruse the Scriptures in human terms that you and I can understand. It paints a picture in our mind, in our life. The right hand was definitely terminology that was understood by Jesus' day, pre-Jesus' day, and should even be able to turn be understood by our day. All right? Amen. The right hand of God. Genesis 48. There's a story here that I wish to read in your hearing, starting with verse 13. And Joseph took them both. Ephraim. I might have to put this one out too. Come here, Ephraim and Manasseh. All right? You guys all right? Yeah, come on. Brother Mason, can you help me? Ephraim and Manasseh, no, turn toward me, please. Ephraim and Ephraim and Manasseh here. Amen. Come, come behind them, Brother Mason. This, this is Manasseh. This is Ephraim. All right, listen to the scripture now. Ephraim in his, Joseph took them both. Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand. I need to switch that. I'm sorry. This is Ephraim. This is Manasseh. This is what happens whenever I'm not sitting over here. Manasseh's on my right because I'm I'm going to be be Israel. I'm going to be Jacob. Ephraim in his right hand, Brother Mason's right hand, Israel's left hand. Am I getting this all messed up? (laughs) Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand. You're Joseph, all right? You're Joseph. I'm sorry. Toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. You got him because this should be Manasseh and this is Ephraim I'm Jacob They're coming. he's pushing these boys toward me the, the, the thing is Joseph wants me being, being Jacob my, my vision's dim the Bible says that my vision's dim he's, he's trying to help me out here because this is Manasseh the firstborn so he wants my right hand to be upon him because that was typical that was customary he wants my left hand to be upon Ephraim Amen. If I mess them up, you know where I'm going. Read the scripture. It's truth, not what I'm saying. All right? Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near unto him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger. And his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands willingly for Manasseh was the firstborn. This is Manasseh. This is Ephraim. This is the way it's coming. I, I'm, dimmed, I'm dimmed to eyesight, but there's something in me that's telling me I need to take this hand and place it over here and this hand and place it over here. Now, Joseph's man's looking at this and said, man, Dad, you're worse off than what I thought. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And verse number 17, the Bible says that when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, who is the younger, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. So Joseph, he understands the customs of their day. So it was typical then, just even by his response, it was typical for the right hand to be the hand where the firstborn is. customary. Other day but daddy's switching all up and he's crossing all this and so in verse 19 the Bible says and his father refused and said I know it my son he, he attested the fact I know this is the way that it usually is it's always the firstborn at the right hand I know it he also shall become a, a, a people and he also shall be great but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his seed shall become a multitude of nations I still might need you there because in order to keep this all straight So by God's guidance, Jacob placed his right hand upon Ephraim rather than Manasseh, the firstborn, which would have been customary to place it upon the firstborn because the firstborn was considered to be the root of all power. He's the first offspring of his father. Considered the root of all power. He's the initial offspring from his father's loins. Not only that, by virtue of this, the firstborn, or might I say, the right-hand man normally, that firstborn or the right-hand man, I'll call him, normally had special rights and authority in the family as a result of his position. Now, just reason here with me for a moment. We've already seen in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus was the firstborn, hear me now, of every creature. John 3.16 tells For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son only begotten if He was the only begotten then He was the first begotten as well. All right, Only begotten and first begotten Son. So with this in mind therefore the customs of that time deemed then that the firstborn was at the right hand. Normally. Everybody following what I'm saying? Whenever Stephen sees Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, which is a figurative, symbolical language. He's speaking something that those of old times knew, that anybody that's at the right hand of anything must be firstborn. Jesus, according to Colossians 1.15, emphatically stated that Jesus Christ was the firstborn of every creature. And firstborn are usually deemed with rights, special rights, and authority. Amen. Someone say amen. amen. Not only was he the firstborn... But Stephen, seeing that through symbolical language, understood then that Jesus had some special rights and authority that not just anybody had that came directly from God who's not seen but his spirit. Someone say amen. Now in our, y'all doing all right standing up? Staying awake? However, in the Genesis episode, God knew that Ephraim would be greater than Manasseh. As a matter of fact, whenever they entered to the wilderness, both Manasseh and Ephraim, according to numbers, the numbers were greater of Ephraim than they were of Manasseh. Furthermore, whenever they actually go into the promised land and cross over Jordan, sad to say, but only half the tribe of Manasseh really crossed over and went into the promised land while all of Ephraim entered into the promised land. Therefore, by being directed by the Lord, he crosses over at this particular set of time. Amen. Demon Ephraim greater, more powerful, because it was going to be a tribe that was going to stay intact. It wasn't going to be divided. Amen. And so there was was symbolism in all of that. So when we consider the following verses, you guys can sit down, I won't wear you out. Considering, Considering the verses, we understand that that right hand then is describing greatness, it's describing power, it's describing authority, it's describing special rights, it's describing normally, customarily, the spot of the firstborn. Amen. So whenever Stephen seen the right right arm or hand of God, amen, which God is a spirit, so he couldn't see that, so he's speaking in symbolical language. He's speaking of the firstborn position, the special rights and authority and power that Jesus Christ had. Amen. This question will come up in your life, folks. I'm carrying you right now there's recorded of the song of Moses it's a celebration after they're coming through the Red Sea and God intervened for them in Exodus 15 and verse 6 just a verse of scripture says thy he's speaking of the Lord thy right hand O Lord is become glorious in power thy right hand O Lord hath dashed in pieces the enemy that sounds like a hand that has authority authority a hand that has power. Yes. Amen. Here in Matthew 26, Amen. The high priest is questioning Jesus Christ. As he is questioning Jesus Christ, he's asking him whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus' response is this in Matthew 26 and verse 64. You can check this in the harmony of the other gospels. Matthew 26, verse 64, Jesus saith unto this high priest that's questioning whether or not he is the Son of God. He says, "Thou hast said," this high priest saying, "Are you the Son of God?" He said, "You said it." And he said, "Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter, Jesus speaking, shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power." What was he describing then? He was describing even what Stephen would later see in the book of Acts chapter number 7. Not a person standing at the right hand of another person, but a person in symbolical language standing at the right hand of something which indicated that this was a man of position and power and authority and dominion. Amen. That's our Jesus Christ. Amen. Consider else places. What else? Amen. The right hand may represent what it may stand for. Amen. The firstborn, greatness, power, authority, salvation. Amen. Symbolical language here. Job chapter 40 and verse 14. The scripture says, Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. Now just watch. That's Genesis 40. What's happening in Genesis 40 we under, Job has went through a lot of stuff He had a lot of comfortless friends He spoke back to them He has spoke to the Lord But at this period of time Toward the latter end of Job God is speaking to Job In reality God is setting Job straight Because Job has contended with God mm-hmm. Job has spoke to God as though he God needed instruction as though he needed to tell God what God needed to do let me tell you something I'm not going to take out on some parking lot around here of a dealership for a brand new 2013 let's call it a Ford And take the person who was the master engineer over the engineer to take him out there and start telling him how he could better design. But that, in essence, is what Job was doing. He was trying to, per se, give some instruction to God. And so God sets Job in his place. Mm -hmm. And reminds him that there's no other that has the abilities that he does. And to kind of prove that, and I, you know, I'm not calling God smart, Alec, but boy, he he kind of proves it very well. God challenges Job. Read chapter forty. He challenges Job and he says, "Job, I tell you what. Why don't you gather together all the prideful and humble them right here in the dust by your own power?" And God then basically says in the verse that I read to you, "If you can do this." Then I'll confess unto thee, Job, that thine, Job's own right hand, can save him. I'm saying your right hand. He could have said his left hand, but he said your right hand. We got other scripture. I'm not just pulling one thing out of the whole Bible. So we start to see illustration here. Not only, not only does that right hand maybe illustrate power and authority and rights and firstborn, but salvation. Amen let me state it very clearly and I'll share scripture the right hand is the hand that saves David mentions this on several occasions a few verses of scripture Psalm 17 and verse 7 shew thy marvelous loving kindness speaking of God O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them Psalms 20 and verse 6 Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. So David emphasizes that God saves by his right hand. Now this isn't a literal hand. Again, there's symbolism there. It's no surprise then to see the very same language in the book of Acts chapter 7. Stephen seeing a man Jesus Christ standing on the right hand of God. What is denoted in Old Testament as the saving hand of God or the salvation hand of God. Why is that so? Why is that not surprising? Because Matthew 1:21 clearly tells us, speaking of Mary, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall what? Save his people from their sins. Jesus is standing on the right hand, the saving hand of God, because Jesus is the one that will save people from their sins. Amen. Amen. You ever heard that phrase? Maybe you maybe used it yourself. And this, this, this is my right hand man. Even modern day. This is my right man hand. This is my right man, right hand man. Don't say that five times fast, please. As defined, as defined that phraseology defined by the free dictionary. Amen. That was online. It said this. The right hand man is a person, listen, is a person who contributes to the fulfillment of a need or furtherance of an effort or purpose. Uh-huh. The person, Jesus Christ, the one in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the person, Jesus Christ, contributed what God the Spirit had not flesh, bones, and blood to fulfill the need. What was the need? The salvation, the saving of humanity listen God as a spirit is without the flesh without the bones without the blood but again 2 Corinthians 5:19, to it though that God that spirit was in Christ that body that had flesh and bones and blood was reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ and since there was blood blood could be shed and since blood was shed, sins could be remitted. Because without the, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We, if we say modern day, Jesus Christ was the right hand man uh-huh, of God because he did contribute to the fulfillment of a need. He gave and supplied the blood for the furtherance of an effort and purpose which was the saving of humanity. Amen. Psalms 80, verse 17. David speaking, he said, Let thy hand be upon the man, speaking of Jesus Christ. Let thine hand be upon the man, Jesus Christ. David speaking to, to, to God. Let thine hand be upon the man, Jesus Christ. Of thy right hand, let the hand be upon the man, Jesus Christ. Of thy right hand, upon the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast. Whom thou madest strong for thyself. Yeah, he made him strong for himself because he had a purpose, an intent, and a design for the man Christ Jesus. He knew from the very beginning of the world he was going to have this taken place that he would have a person, a body, upon the world that would be sinless, that they could die be buried, and be resurrected. What? For the saving of humanity. He's always been at the right hand of God, figuratively. He would always be the firstborn, the powerful spiritual rights authority. Amen. Having the ability to be the right hand man. Amen. In order to do what needed to be done for you and I. All right? All right? The Bible says, let's sum up just a few other scriptures here about the right hand or the right hand of God. Psalm 16, verse 11, and there are more. Let me tell you, I cut out probably every bit of probably 10 or more verses uh, just so that we could go home at a decent hour tonight. Psalm 16, and verse 11, thou wilt shew me the path of light. We've heard this. Some of us have quoted. David says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand, there's what? There are pleasures. Forever. David says at the right hand of God are pleasures. If I may say it like this, at the right hand of God, there is that which is pleasing. Somebody follow me? Jesus was powerful. By all means, the saving hand, that's salvation. But he was also that which at the right hand are pleasures, that which is pleasing. He was pleasing. To God. Mm-hmm. How does that still pan out in Scripture? Well, we read in Matthew, even in the Scripture, Matthew 25, you don't necessarily have to go there if you don't want to, Sister McGee. But please note where those who please God are set at. According to Matthew 25, 33, the sheep sit on the right hand and the goats on the left. And furthermore, then it is the sheep that are on the right hand that are told, come. Ye are blessed of my thought. You're blessed. Yeah. Being at the right hand is the pleasing hand of God, the blessed hand of God. Stephen seeing Jesus there, that's a man that pleased God. That was a man that was blessed of God. Not a literal thing. figurative, to symbolical thing. Psalms 48 and verse 10. We could do Bible drills tonight, folks. I'm telling you right now nothing better than having a lesson founded on the word Psalms 48 and verse 10 according to thy name O God so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth thy right hand is full of righteousness Thy, thy right hand is full of righteousness the right hand of God is where the righteousness of God is Jesus was seen there he was the righteousness of God how right? Again, the only one of humanity that ever lived upon the earth that was without sin. Tempted in all ways like you and I are yet without. That is the righteousness. Amen. Of God. 1 Kings two nineteen. hurrying along. Bathsheba therefore went into King Solomon to speak unto him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed himself under, unto her. And sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother. Bathsheba was Solomon's mother. And she sat on his right hand. Bathsheba is the king's mother. Being instructed according he is absolutely knowledgeable of the Old Testament law to honor your father and your mother. And yet he caused, the king did. He caused the seat to be set. It's not like, you know, the servant just saying, yeah, okay, we're just going to put it right there, you know, take the king. No, 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 no. By divine instruction of the king, bring it in. Set it over here on my right side. Why? Because mama's gonna be sitting there, and I have to, I need to honor. The right hand, the right place was a place of honor. Yes, See, in Jesus Christ there, that was a place of honor. Now, I'm hastening to a close. I really am. My time's already up. Did I hear keys jingle? Don't be playing with me, Andrew. This is interesting to me. This is your homework, okay? You go home, as a student of the Word, you go home tonight, you read Hebrews chapter number 1. Go home, read Hebrews chapter number 1, because you're going to find this right-hand imagery again. This being on the right hand, you're going to find that again in Hebrews chapter number 1. Now look, whenever you read Hebrews chapter number 1, Hebrews chapter number 1 is referring to the Son, or what we would know Him as, Jesus Christ. Throughout this chapter of Hebrews chapter number 1, The various meanings of the right hand that are attributed to Jesus through symbolism and scripture that I just ran through because we could even went slower tonight are all bound up right there in Hebrews chapter number one. Because you begin reading Hebrews chapter number one about the son Jesus Christ and you'll read things like he is the heir of all things. What is that? That's special rights. He made the worlds, it states. It speaks that he upholds all things by the word of His power. What is that? He's talking about power there, talking about strength, talking about authority, talking about greatness. In those phrases, He purged our sins, salvation, saving hand. He was the first begotten, firstborn status. He has a scepter of righteousness. Hmm. Righteousness is there in his right hand. He also stated that he loves, Jesus Christ loves righteousness. Mm -hmm. He's the right hand man. He has been anointed with oil of gladness above his fellows. What is that? Pleasure. There's pleasing right there. He's more pleasing and favorable than others. Amen. Unlike the angels you can read in the scripture, he has been asked to sit on the right hand, that place of prestige and honor and power and glory. So folks, Stephen, the Bible says, saw the glory of God, no doubt which was Jesus Christ. Was Jesus Christ. I mean, speak of his glory, we've already talked about some of the glorious things of him. Jesus was standing on the right hand of God, not a literal right hand, because God is a spirit that's invisible so we're using symbolical language somewhat poetic language that people of the Old Testament, New Testament, even of today can relate to it was not two persons that he seen in heaven, for that matter Revelations 4 tells us there is one throne in heaven and one that sits upon that throne So we're not, we're not, Stephen was not seeing God the Father and God the Son, no. He's seen Jesus Christ in his authority, in his power, in his firstborn status, with all righteousness, with great honor, with all the pleasing and pleasure to his father. He's seen, he's seen, he's seen the man, Christ Jesus. You'll stand with me tonight. I hope someone receives something from what was said this evening it's, it's important i tell you why because there's people that's in church for 30 years that ask a question about Acts 7 and I don't want 30 years to pass from now and you have to come to me with the question is there two gods that are being illustrated in Acts 7 when Stephen's departing I want the lesson to be learned well amen because man that's just a I feel like a failure if somewhere along the way we don't pick up on some of this put it in our heart in our lives take it from here and go home and not just take my word for it, go back and look up those scriptures. You know what I did today? what did you do? Well, I started with the right hand and I looked up every verse in the Bible that listed the right hand in it and read every single one of them in the context in which they were saved. That's what Bible study is all about. Take it home. Look at it for yourself. Don't just say, well... Well, Pastor McGee, he said, who cares really what I said? Look at God's word. What did his word say? Because you don't have to go tell them, well, this is what my pastor said. You can say, this is what God's word. How do you know that? I looked at it for myself. I studied for it myself. I ran the reference for myself. Yes, man, preach it. Amen. Let's bow our heads this evening. Father, I come to you tonight.